You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. This was a really fun episode for us to dig into the first tenet of the alternative orthodoxy, which in shorthand is scripture as validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. Mm-hmm. And it's a mouthful. Yep. But we talk about how these balance each other and help us begin to look about how our personal experience is in relationship to tradition and scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking at you because I thought you were going to wrap it and like perform that because it is a mouthful, but I thought you were going to speed it up a little. Just give us something you, juicy. You want to, me to rhyme? No, no, not. Well, maybe we'll save it for later. But Richard himself says that this really isn't a theme, even though it's the first theme, it's not really a theme. He says it's a methodology. Right. So it gives us a way to understand how even the rest of the themes came to be. And it gives us a way to understand how we can live into a new worldview when our old worldview is changing. So if we are leaving a set of belief systems behind and moving into a new way of seeing and a new way of perceiving and a new way of acting, how do we know how to trust that? Yeah. This methodology helps teach us a way to balance out and hold our new experiences and tensions so that we can trust what is unfolding and what's emerging. Yeah, it's a very expansive methodology because it allows us to bring the fullness of reality into the conversation. And that's what it feels like. This methodology feels like a conversation between three different kind of poles that help mm-hmm. us create this beautiful, cohesive image about how we want to participate right. in the life of God. And it's tricky for so many of us because if we're talking about scripture, experience, and tradition, well, for many of us, there's a lot of baggage around scripture and tradition. So in this episode, we explore how do we do that faithfully when our traditions are evolving or need to evolve? How do we look at scripture as maybe incorporating more sacred texts than just the Bible? And how do we allow that then to validate and balance out our experience and hold that to a sense of accountability to something more. Yeah, because I think what we found is that often within traditions we were raised in, one is emphasized more than another. Oh, yeah. And then so how do we help? B-I-B-L-E all the way. (laughs) Solo Scriptura. (laughs) And how do we help create kind of a a healthy checks and balances to build a a more vibrant relationship Mm -hmm. so that we don't miss out on the goodness of what happens when we're in relationship with these three tenants within this one beginning starting place. Yeah, and to see them as living. Yes. A living tradition, the living scripture, our living experience, then changes how we understand our spiritual worldview isn't static. It's becoming, it's growing, and we're growing with it. And I found that to be extremely helpful and soften the edges around my baggage with some of these things. So I hope that you find it helpful as well as we dive into episode two, exploring the first theme of the alternative orthodoxy. All right, so we are now diving into the first theme of the alternative orthodoxy, which just as a reminder to all of us here and then for you listening at home, that first theme is scripture as validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition are good scales for one's spiritual worldview. And one way we thought to put a little flesh on some of these themes, so to not have them just fly off into the land of esoteric or just ideas, was how do we embody or experience these in our lives? And so, Bree, can you kick us off by telling a story from your own life, how this yeah. theme first landed for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's 
retrospectively, right, that I can see how this methodology is true. I'm going to use a little bit of liberty here with the idea of scripture, because if I'm really honest, scripture as validated by my experience and experience as validated by tradition hasn't always worked for me in terms of Christianity, because as a woman, I haven't had a lot of that mirrored back to me with full permission of embodiment, right? The characters that I needed to look to in scriptures, the permission that I may or may not have felt within the tradition to speak. So growing up Baptist, my tradition was, I wasn't going to have an option to be a teacher or speaker. So Mm. if it's okay, I mean, I don't know if this works, but for me, one of the foundations of my childhood, Richard, was that my parents gave us a lot of really great literature to read. And in a way, some of it became a a form of a sacred text. So Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and there were certain values and storylines in that that did validate my experience and that my experience did in turn validate that formed part of a sense of belonging to something bigger that for me was a big T tradition. And maybe because it was literature, it opened me up to that sense of what is possible as being beyond what was just in our reality and allowed me to live into it further. So I guess an example of that, I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings. For me, the sacredness of some of those characters like Arwen and Eowyn, these really badass female characters that sought to heal and participate and give themselves to this quest Now I could get behind that. Mm. I had a hard time getting behind like the idea of like a very meek and mild Mary, (laughs) but I could get behind these characters as being an invitation for me to live into something bigger. So I don't know if that's fair to say that Richard, but in terms of, of the methodology working for me, the sacred texts, if we expand what we mean by that, were validated by my experience. And that in turn allowed my experience to be validated by a bigger tradition and allowed a bigger tradition. Yeah. Allowed the creation of a worldview to take place. And maybe it was because those novels were in tandem with the tradition I was being handed as a Baptist. They went well together because it almost was like those novels were the alternative orthodoxy to the orthodoxy that I was being given. Mm. Paul, do you have a a story that's probably more concrete than my, well, (laughs) I do have a concrete story of one, this was actually just last month, where as all good stories start, this one starts with laundry. We (laughs) live in New Mexico, and so we don't have a clothes dryer because the New Mexico sun can dry our clothes just as fast. Mm -hmm. Keep that in your brain. And then this is one Saturday morning, there's a knock on my door. Open the door, and it's one of my neighbors who's just irate. He is so upset. I'm like, what's going on? And he said, well, you don't really know me. He's like, I live across the street catty corner to your house. And I saw someone come onto your property and steal some of your property. I, I said, what, what's going on? Just kind of, kind of befuddled by what's going on. And he said, yeah, I saw a guy steal one of your shirts from your drying rack. <laughs> and I'm just like trying to let this all soak in, you know, and he's saying, I've called the police. They're not doing anything. You got to call the police, tell them that it's your property that was stolen. And again, I'm just like, I'm holding my one-year-old son and just kind of trying to make sense of the situation. And I said, say more, tell me more about what happened. He said, okay, so there's this guy who was ambling down the street, kind of pudgy and shirtless. And so I'm like, a shirtless man stole one of my shirts? (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of, I just chuckled because I, and then immediately the line of Jesus, of if someone asked for your Sure, give them your cloak too, or the other way around. Yes. And 
I was just like, you know, it's okay. I'll follow up as the way I see most appropriate, which is not to call the police, but offer a little yeah. prayer for this newly shirted man as he's <laughs> going on his way. But it really helped me in a way like that personal experience of somebody needing a shirt, taking a shirt, taking it. but it really helped validate that, that scripture passage for me of like, how do I live in this life of generosity mm. where it's, everything is not just about what is mine and how I protect what's mine, mm. but how do I live in this exchange of openness and vulnerability, even when it, it comes at the cost of my own mm. favorite shirt my mom gave me for Christmas five years ago. A bit of a, a particular way for me that I had a sense of scripture being affirmed by that own my own experience. Mm. Wow, this is a good starting point. As you were both speaking, and I would take your advice on this sincerely. I know we haven't changed these wordings too much. But do you think it would be better to say sacred scriptures mm -hmm. as validated by experience? Yeah. Because I think if we keep saying sola scriptura yeah. in any way, especially now that we're in contact with the whole eastern hemisphere of the world and we find so much wisdom in confucianism in hindu scriptures sacred scriptures is validated and leave that fuzzy mm. leave it deliberately and w let's say when you read tolkien and you're the 50th person to have told me that that tolkien became uh, i can't say he did for me i never liked all the wars but for so many people tolkien's writings are just apparitions of different meaningful uh, helps them to plumb the depths of god experience inner experience their own experience and i uh, give that some thought in the school mm. i think that's what i was uh, in yeah, a really well, messy roundabout way trying to get at is that I think what really made this methodology come to life for me and really has is the broadening of scripture as understanding it as sacred text, which does include, you know, beautiful works of art and also includes poetry too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's in a line of poetry or oh, in the storytelling, you, doubt that? you do find something that comes from that that rings true and helps produce that depth of a spiritual worldview. Mm. Richard, would you say the same about tradition? Would you add, I know this has been a conversation amongst the faculty, would you add an S to say traditions? No, I'd say by the perennial tradition. Okay. So a big T tradition. Because I've always used the word big T. Yeah. But we've evolved even on that. What do we mean by the big T as validated by the perennial tradition? Mm-hmm. But is there one perennial God? How broad do you make it before it's meaningless? Mm. So why does the, the curriculum committee of the living school give that some thought? Get, get on that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that you have my permission and encouragement. Because when I see how many years it took me to write that book, What Do We Do With the Bible?, and to be confident that I was not writing something that everybody would attack me for. I realize, what's a little 16-year-old boy in the Dominican Republic going to do with the Bible? Mm -hmm. We've got to get a broader understanding of yeah. the Bible real quick. Because so many stories, for the same reason I dislike Tolkien, so many wars, 
Well, read the books of kings. War after war, killing after killing. A young man, that's all he reads, Mm -hmm. and it excites him. It's an archetype that appeals to him. So we've got to honor our own scriptures. I'll still give them a centrality if I'm going to call myself a Christian. It's the scriptures of all the world, really. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though I would still give centrality of place, like I hope, let's put it very practical, after I pass, I would hope we'd still read the daily gospel each day because I know the push will be, let's read Hindu scriptures. Just be careful. That's all I'm saying. Let's honor them. But if you make it too wide, the widening never stops. Yeah. It never stops. Take my word for that. Right. There will always be a new one offering a critique of this. Mm-hmm. You know, well, why don't we put George Orwell's writings? <laughs> and there's a truth to that. But is you have to have some key scriptures or Mm -hmm. key texts, even if your understanding of them broadens. I mean, I'm thinking of our own American Declaration of Independence, how this is being really parsed and re-understood right now with all men are created equal and certain inalienable rights. Well, how come we thought we understood that? And now we know we didn't understand either of those central statements. Yeah. Central. So we got to do the same with our own scriptures, I think. Well, and I think what you're doing by broadening scriptures to include sacred texts and by broadening tradition to be the big T tradition big of the perennial tea. tradition, what it does is it allows us a little bit of room to breathe and find a... There you go. Like follow the oxygen yeah. to where God might be inviting us to mm. grow because... I'm thinking of many Christian mutts who, like me, who maybe have gone through a season of deconstruction in their lives where it's very difficult for them to pick up the Bible. And I wonder what you would say to them with this methodology then of, would you recommend mystical texts as part of our sacred text canon? Would you say, yeah, maybe pick up Julian of Norwich or John of the Cross and read The Dark Night of the Soul or would you, in that, also include the perennial tradition sacred texts? Yeah, no, my approach there would be to bring them in under the rubric of tradition, mm-hmm. which, in effect, balances out the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Because once we start arguing about which are the sacred scriptures, there's no stopping it. Right, again. right. So we want the interior castle to be taken seriously, but under the rubric of tradition. And is it in contradiction to Scripture? I don't think so. But in the very ability to say that, it makes you go deeper with the Scriptures, I hope, and deeper with Teresa of Avila. Mm -hmm. I like that a Mm -hmm. lot. That's that's actually really helpful because when oh, I'm thinking good. about like what Tolkien, the role that Tolkien and C.S. Lewis had in my life, wasn't that it it didn't become my scripture. It was that it helped elucidate the truth uh-huh. of scripture. So maybe I would put them in the camp of tradition as well. Or the way to read literature. Right, because they, what it did is it allowed me to, as I grew, to appreciate scripture even more yeah. and to fall yep. in love with scripture that's, again. That's what I'm trying to validate right okay. here. That's a helpful clarification for me to but think each about. each of the three validate the other two in a rich way. It helps bring an imagination to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. And I'm wondering, Richard, just knowing that this could be something that's 
someone listening to trying to be Russell, how does this work with their own life? Can you give an example of, say, something, a scripture from the Bible about how that would play into this methodology, like how you would work with that in that same way to, to balance it out by tradition and personal experience? Some experience I've had. Yeah. If there's one that comes to mind. I was able to trust that experience because I found a scripture, story, or mystic saint who said the same. Mm -hmm. Gosh, there's probably so many because that's the way I've almost lived the last 50 years of my life. It's (laughs) everything is this little billiard ball game of these three hitting on one another. And it gave me the self-confidence that I speak with, which sometimes I'm sure to many people seems arrogant. But the reason I trust my experience to sometimes probably in many people's minds an arrogant degree is because both Jesus and Paul gave me permission to do that. Mm. That both of them trusted their own experience just look at the whole, the whole corpus of their words against their religion, Judaism, which is just amazing. I don't know that many seminarians are told that, that they highly critique Judaism and drew out from that storehouse things both old and new. That's been my whole life. Now, where did I get that freedom? Where did I get that courage? Where did I get that confidence? Where did I become so foolhardy? Because I don't think most young priests, at least even old priests, have that freedom to do that. They just they feel they've got to repeat cliches that do not knock on experience. Mm. And they don't need to read the mystics to validate the scriptures they're preaching from each Sunday. When Luther said sola scriptura, he had no idea what a bag of worms he was opening Mm -hmm. because he highly narrowed the source of authority and limited the source of spiritual authority. For 500 years... And now to broaden it back out and to allow poetry, to allow theater, to allow drama and novels to enter the scene. Now I'm not answering your question anymore. But I'm finding it hard to answer because that's the only thing I've done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you're speaking to is just the how sometimes without the interplay of these three Scripture can be very binding. It can feel like yes. a rule book versus like a yes. conversation that invites mm-hmm. yeah. a, a level of freedom that one cannot even imagine when you just have, you're only in that one lane. And I love the billiard ball image because it's it's constant movement about how they all interrelate. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. And that the way that you define the mystic is moving to trusting that inner experience. Inner experience. And how I'm seeing you emphasize it in this tenet it is very different than how we traditionally organize in Christianity. It is. Because, and we've talked about this before, but we seem to be so much more comfortable when an authority figure is telling us mm-hmm. what it is it. and what the rules are and how I can do it perfectly. And it's like, we're so hungry for that certainty principle that what happens is 
we stop participating. We mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. experiencing or trusting our experience. Yeah. Which really means, if you don't mind, that we stop praying. Because I think what we really mean by prayer is a, an inner dialogue of trust. Really. Mm. An inner dialogue of pitch and catch. Mm. That's experience. <laughs> But because prayer became this asking God for things and telling God things instead of an inner dialogue of trust, I think prayer became, a, for many people, a, a very narrow concept, mm-hmm. not a helpful life concept. Yeah, it seems to be that shift from transaction to relationship. Very good, mm-hmm. Again, yes. we often talk at the center about how Jesus is our central reference point. And would you say that that this tenet is hinting at that reality? Because really... Is what? Hinting at the reality hinting. that, that Jesus is our central reference point. Because when I look at scriptures validated by experience, experience validated by tradition, it seems like it's showing us the Jesus hermeneutic. It's showing us how Jesus lived from that oneness, where he held his experience and his tradition in tension with his experience of God that was animating him into action in a way, you know? I just... Where does that principle of of Jesus being our central reference point, where does that sit with this tenet? You know, I bet most of our churches use some kind of phrase, uh, tell me if it's true, we interpret the scriptures in the light of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Did you? Yeah. But no one really drew out what we were saying by that, that he was the the lens, the... um, it wasn't that all the scriptures were directly pointing to Jesus, but the way he used them is the key. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very different. Whereas I thought, oh, all of the scriptures are foretelling Jesus. They are, but they aren't. They really aren't. They're, but they lay an entire field inside of which a Jesus person can emerge. Mm-hmm and can say the things he said, apart from individual revelation from God, he was building on the our story, the second dome, of his Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just relying upon what God told him secretly in the wilderness. He was, but what gave him the confidence to hear that was he was a good Jew. What gave me the confidence to hear that is I was a good Catholic, really. You being good covenanters and good Baptists, (laughs) you got to give them credit. They narrowed the field and focus of authority enough to give you confidence that you weren't crazy, that you weren't making up these ideas. That's certainly what the Catholic tradition did for me. Franciscanism even more. And Richard, I'm thinking about, Brie, what you had said about how scripture and how it hasn't always been life-giving because you couldn't see yourself in it. Or, yeah, and, yeah. Pursue and, that. And, and Richard, with you, spoken of your love of scripture, it's always fun to see your Bible and how marked up it is and how weather-beaten <laughs> and, and it's been a companion for you. But have you ever had a season where scripture has been dry, where it has just hasn't been life-giving, you don't have that same conversation with it. I'm sort of in it now. 
I told you yesterday I, I don't read that much. <laughs> that includes the Bible. I just, because I've developed such a critical mind, seeing how this just keeps being misused, keeps being misunderstood, that so much of the Jesus hermeneutic, the knowledge of literature, the knowledge of symbol, metaphor, the nature of truth, the nature of truth inside of contextual community. Look, it took me 77 years to get to this. Yeah, please don't take too much from this, but I'm there right now. I, mm -hmm. I'm not reading the Bible much. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's nice when I find a verse that confirms what I already believe. Forgive me, i got to reveal my egocentricity. I'm there more than ever right now. Now, I'm not saying that's the goal that you all should aim for. The only times I read it is when it's the gospel for next Sunday, and then I read it two or three times, including the first and second reading. So, yeah, I guess I've answered your question. <laughs> I hope it isn't too scandalous. No, I mean, I think it's so human and honest to say, Again, if we just limit the field of scriptures to our own Christian text, then we need to expect that it's going to move in and out of our lives with rhythm and seasonality. But I'm also reflecting on the fact that as a Franciscan, that teaching that, that nature is the first Bible, <laughs> you know, that's another sacred text. Huge. And... <laughs> Foundational. Uh, the study of the natural world with awe and wonder is another part of that sacred contemplative gaze of allowing that to validate experience and tradition too, to live in Thank relationship you. with it. Yes. And you're certainly doing that a lot yeah. these days, Richard, with all your <laughs> nature shows. So I really am. I didn't watch any last I'll still time. call you a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of shifting out of the scripture component and, and looking a little bit at experience and tradition, what does experience as validated by tradition mean today now when the traditions mean mm. vastly different things to different people. By what do we hold ourselves accountable when so much of it actually needs to change? So I'm even thinking wow. about, yes. you know, the Christian tradition. I know that's a, a very monolithic way to describe it because there's many Christian traditions, but when we need to be evolving tradition, how do we hold that intention with this principle? Experience is validated by tradition. How do we do that? I mean, you're naming the complexity, especially when there's so many traditions. I was with a method, wonderful Methodist minister recently, and he kept very sincerely and healthily kept referring to the Wesleyan tradition and we Methodists, and I didn't disagree with anything he said, but I would have never said it that way because mm -hmm. I wasn't trained in... Methodist vocabulary and emphasis. Let, let's just settle on this, that, that our God clearly is comfortable with diversity. And there's no indication in the entire known universe, the seas or the heavens or the land, that God is interested in uniformity. Everything... Different, 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 different in my nature shows. I, I'm just fascinated by it. they keep going deeper in the ocean. Hmm. And they'll say even now, you're probably the first human being 
who's ever seen this squid. That's amazing. <laughs> it just come on. Uh, and it creates its own light down there at the bottom of the ocean and is quite I guess it's happy. <laughs> I hope <laughs> I hope it's happy. But let's just celebrate diversity more. Now, I feel free to do that if you don't mind my arrogance in saying it because I have a deep Belief in unity, that there's an underlying unified field, mm. to quote Annie Dillard. Once you're grounded in the unified field, then a new discovery of diversity, a Methodist way of saying it, is, oh, that's novel, that's a little different, but I don't have any need to dismiss it. You're not threatened by yeah, it. Yeah, or, or to uh, lighten its weight. In fact, usually it's able to expand my own Catholic field mm. mm-hmm. or affirm it, almost always, really. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Keep pulling on this this thread of that diversity. I'm thinking about one of Bree's earlier points about those who are not their experience is not reflected in tradition, whether it's women or mm, pe- people yes, of the LGBTQ yeah. plus community. What words of hope do you have mm. for folks Thank who you. aren't seeing their own experience re- represented in a sacred text or tradition? This is so important. I remember I was given a retreat to lay missionaries in Venezuela, it was, oh, it's 30 years ago. And this group of fine women, I mean, really, they weren't rebels. They, were, they gave their life to work in the missions. But they said, I can't fully commit myself to Christianity till I recognize there's been some form of feminine incarnation. 
At first it sounds, oh, stop being so feminist. <laughs> Once I can get over that overreaction and recognize, I put myself in their shoes, mm -hmm. how would I feel? Now that's why I made the point in the universal Christ of creation being the first incarnation and being the feminine. The feminine came first, the mother preceding the son. Mm -hmm. Took me 30 years to say that in a book. So it's there, but we have to have more theologians and teachers and, and catechists. If it doesn't reach the local level, it isn't going to hold many people inside of the Christian mystery. For me to say it, and what percentage of humanity will ever read one of my books, so so what? This has got to get to the catechal level. That's the power Pope Francis has already offered our church, that he's being quoted by little catechists in Brazil, Laudato Si especially. How many generations is it going to take for this to filter down? I, I am a little frightened. Is it going to take collapse, catastrophe, for us to read the scriptures in a human way, a natural way, a, an inclusive way. I bet it is. Because if it's true that we don't change till we suffer, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's probably going to be some communal suffering presented to us. When I'm reflecting on how you distinguish between the institution and tradition. I feel like this might be something that we we need to really spend time on yes. as we think about this methodology because scripture is validated by experience. Experience is validated by the living tradition, the living perennial tradition, which by the way is bigger than the institutionalization yes. of yeah. Christianity that turned it into a hierarchy yeah. of power and uh -huh. patriarchy and that has manipulated it into racism and damaging exclusionary systems of oppression. And I think there's something there that we have to really distinguish between the institution that functions through power over and the living perennial tradition that has always been about that unity and diversity mm -hmm. that you're speaking of, Richard, that is the communion paradigm that invites us into it. So that's helpful for me because I, I mean, I obviously struggle with this piece. I, I got into an argument with a friend over the summer like I do, <laughs> about Catholicism. And I, I said something like, I mean, I, I'm practically Catholic at this point, but I just can't, <laughs> I could never actually go through with it because I struggle with the, the lack of recognition of feminine leadership or the authority of, of a woman in the midst yes. of, of this. It's like, it's, it boggles my mind. And I was saying this to him and he's like, ugh. That's such a Protestant thing to say. As if, <laughs> he's like, as if I can leave my tradition. He's yeah. like, I don't like it either, but I'm a part of it. Mm. But I still pushed him on it because I was like, yeah, well, then do something about it. You're in it. You said that it. to you? No, I said it to him. You said it to I him. Said, well, gotcha, if you're going to stay gotcha. in your tradition yeah. and be happy as a Catholic, then what are you doing to mm -hmm. evolve it and move it forward? And that's the tension point that I mm. think you invite us in when you talk about the edge of the inside which is, okay, let's not confuse the institution with the living tradition. Let's continue to evolve it. Let's participate in changing it, I hope. <laughs> hmm. You know, our new notion of organic food might be a helpful metaphor here for, for the living tradition. 
that it's still the same beet or carrot, but it's been fed by much better nutrients. It's been fed by much better soil or whatever, no pesticides. And we're calling that organic food, and we're willing to pay more money for it. That just came to me just now, but when you talk about the living tradition, let's try to use, now I haven't thought of all the, I'm sure there every metaphor limps, but let's try to think of the living tradition as organic food. Mm. It isn't made by the usual easy glib methods of... Processed. Uh, yeah, processed, uh, using all kind of pesticide and, and everything else. But no, we selectively feed this with good food. And don't let it eat bad food. That's the living tradition. Mm. I never thought of that till mm. just now. I hope it helps. Let's give that some thought. Yeah. <laughs> There's an openness to what we've been talking about, the, the newness and change. And I'm, I'm thinking of a story of Mr. Rogers. Uh, it's been fun to see him resurge to the, in the public conversation. But apparently when he was filming his children's show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, there was times early in his career where, like, say he was walking down the street and he would come across a woman and he would say to his TV audience, she's a housewife, she doesn't have a job. And then years later, what he would do to keep his message evergreen in light of the times, he would go back and refilm that scene and talk about how important her job is as a housewife. If, that, if that's clear, like he would go back and so he's adjust. Like editing himself. He was editing himself. He would go put on the same sweater, you know, in the same shoes and get the same actor if possible. So that knowing that he didn't want to communicate something that was not going to be uplifting or true to, to his message. Genius. I found that so touching and that's beautiful. So really? And I'm wondering for you, Richard, how do you see the role wow. of, of change in this methodology of allowing things to evolve because of truth that is sprouting up in that organic way that maybe wasn't there 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Was Mr. Rogers a nine? I think so. He had he a stillness had about him that was... Uh, Have you seen the movie? No, not yet. I haven't seen it either, but uh, the little snippets I see, he's got to be a very healthy nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you go see it and get a fur. Yeah, something for me to look up to. <laughs> <laughs> I've said only recently that growth, and I'm glad you used that word, is simply the normal word for evolution. And growth is the nature of everything. It's, how can you deny growth? How can parents ever deny growth? <laughs> You've seen it, this little baby turn into a, an adult. Every springtime, it starts over and over again. But I don't think that was the gist of your question. Well, well no, I, I want to build on that, Richard, because if that growth principle is in this, if we were to say that scripture is validated by experience and experience is validated by tradition are good scales for one's growing spiritual worldview, mm. that ah, it's, it's always ah. growing, it's always evolving, it's always including and transcending Excellent. as you I say like then it i feel like then we can see some of that dynamic principle of tradition isn't stuck it's not a static thing scripture isn't stuck we can evolve how we interpret that too and we can include other sacred texts in that i find that growth factor really helpful in this 
Well, good. I mean, maybe the fruit of our dialogue is we're going to rewrite all seven of these <laughs> themes. Someone coming to this for a first reading, mm -hmm. if they see growing spiritual worldview, it'll probably push their panic button. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. We aren't trained to think of growth mm. because we came from transactional Christianity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it wasn't about transformation or growth. It really wasn't. I feel Go like ahead, please. that also allows us to forgive the past, too. That's right. Oh, you said it. And, and include it. And include it. I do feel like so many of the foundational problems that we run into is that we're not building on the foundation of evolution and change and growth. Very good. But if we do, if we do start with a foundation that this is dynamic, that we are growing, mm -hmm that we are in process, then I think it builds in that kind of forgiveness to say, yeah, everything does belong. The rest of the tenants start to fall into place mm. too. So yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I feel that you have, so many of your teachings are built on that framework of embracing evolution and change and growth. Oh, really? Yeah. And That's I didn't of, even realize I was doing that until yeah. recent years. Yeah. Catholics who might be offended by this kind of talk, forgiving the past, how else can you Protestants ever be friends with us if you don't forgive our past? Yeah. So we should welcome this idea, right. forgiving the past. A forgiving Protestant is going to be accepting of the mistakes of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe we should like these guys, you know? <laughs> we have a lot of forgiving to do. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> well, even of ourselves, too, in our and own experiences. your own you know? early, yeah. Thinking about, like, okay, if I'm, if I'm orienting myself toward my growing spiritual worldview, then my posture toward other people is one of humility mm -hmm. because I realize there you go. I don't have it all yet. <laughs> this is not yes. a set in stone thing. Yes. Richard, as we, we start to wrap up this conversation, I have a really funny question that feels almost like a, like a tabletop dinner discussion <laughs> question that you pull out of a box. But I'm kind of curious, like if you were to recommend to somebody one book of the Bible, if you were to say, like if you, if you were to pick one book of the Bible to survive, <laughs> I know I'm putting you in a tough I'm spot. I'm glad I didn't read this first <laughs> yeah, because I would have given it a half an hour of thought. Now, wow, what a good question. Well, it wouldn't be the book of Revelation. <laughs> I can say that. Honestly, it wouldn't be John's gospel because it demands non-dual consciousness and most people aren't there yet. Wow, what would it be? One book. You're only going to grant me one. I know. Well, I was going to expand it because I'm like, maybe we should just say, go ahead, like more than one because then you can say the gospels and then you're liberated from the tension of having to choose. I guess it'd be Mark's Gospel, or maybe Luke's. Which one would it be? Yeah, Luke's Gospel. A little P.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get, yeah, you can, you can, you can change the rules. You can quickly grab a second one as, on your way <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, and, and I know most people will never take the time, nor do they need to. But Paul's critique of law and tradition in Romans, mm. for me. So I'll say... Luke's Gospel and Paul's critique in Romans, mm. which to me is just a masterpiece. Yeah. You see it in my book, What Do We Do With Evil? Mm. 
If that isn't in there, every religion seems to become legalistic. Every denomination becomes legalistic about its first half of life discoveries. It engraves them in stone and wants everybody to come to God the way they think they came to God. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love Paul so much. I, I still think he's a spiritual genius. But he's the second half of life teacher. And without him, you can understand even Luke and his wonderful parables of mercy in a probably rigid way. Mm. So give me those two, Luke and Romans. (laughs) (laughs) Richard, that would be a nice way to round out each of these deep dives into each theme by asking, how do we practice this? How do we practice this theme of the alternative orthodoxy, this methodology? How do we do it? For people who are called to be teachers or writers or communicators, I think you've got to do your homework. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to submit to some lineage, some good education. You don't have a right to just say the first thing that comes into your head. We've suffered from too many so much slaveholder religion and televangelism in America. Mm-hmm. And you say, where did you get the freedom to talk this way? Who are you subject to? And yet these are the, the teachers that are filling the megachurches. And you'd love to know, at least I'd love to know, what are your credentials? Now, for the ordinary person on the street, the mother of five children, <laughs> She just has to be given the freedom to present herself to some good teachers or good mentors or move around till she finds them. She doesn't need to be one. But when we trap her inside of one little storefront church and its limited perspective, yet I hesitate to say that. I think of the amount of black people who in storefront churches have come to a liberating interpretation of the gospel. And we need big screen teachers right now who are grounded in a lineage and can free other people to meet a free God. Because it's obvious that God is free. Our God could not have created, you use the word wild in here, could not have created such a diverse universe that there's no two planets alike, apparently. Hmm. No two stars the same, apparently. Wow, we have been given permission to eat generously of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to make mistakes, to do it wrong, before we learn how to do it right. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'm feeling like, One of the things that we've spoken about on this podcast that I know is so dear to your heart right now, Richard, which is devotion, that the thing that really makes this methodology run is the fuel of devotion. Hmm. That without without deep love and a deep experience of God and devotion to God in that mystery of God, right? To not limit God, but to continue the pursuit, the relational longing and pursuit of God and relationship to others, this doesn't work, but when we do have that, thank you. It sort of animates That's and motivates lovely. the the growing edge of this change and and how these things work together. 
it's too heady, it's too overly falsely self-assured if there isn't some place where you can kneel and kiss the ground. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really. It's just, it's not helpful. It's just ideas and more ideas. And I say that to myself because I've loved ideas all my life. And I know the periods of my life where I get caught up in the ecstasy of my own ideas. Mm. Even the statue of the Buddha that's most authentic has one hand cupped upward and the other one touching the ground. The hand touching the earth is devotion. Mm. Mm. Don't fly off with these ethereal, transcendent ideas unless somewhere, some practical where you're in love, you're committed. That's why most people are called to marriage, to coupling, to having children, because there your love isn't universal anymore. It's particular. Mm, mm -hmm. That's real good. Speaking in particular, should we turn to some voicemails that pertain to this theme? We have a couple of questions from some living school students and alumni that come from the particular areas of their own life. Yeah. The first theme of scripture as validated by experience and experience as validated by tradition took me back to my roots as a United Methodist and the John Wesley quadrilateral. John Wesley believed that the living core of Christian faith was revealed in scripture, illumined by tradition, vivified by experience and confirmed by reason. I noticed that you leave out reason. I think you do. It does seem that reason may not belong. It may not allow for paradoxical thinking. I'm curious what place does reason have, if any, within the context of this first theme or principle that you've laid out? Thank you. I'm invariably asked this good question by a Methodist, and I think it's very legitimate. But I did intentionally leave it out, and I'll try to explain why. I was aware of the quadrilateral, but here is my fear. I'm not sure that my fear is justified, but given the nature of Western civilization, I'm convinced that reason will take over, will dominate. It's all, is it reasonable? What we'd call orange on the uh, spiral dynamics ledger. So here is my way of saying it to the students. Maybe you haven't been in the, in the uh, class yet, the intensive, that I hope what we're teaching here is a reasonable approach to Scripture, the historical critical analysis, a reasonable approach to tradition, which includes many traditions that are not in direct conflict with the perennial tradition. And a reasonable, rational even, if you will, approach to experience. So reason is in there, but I'm not going to give it a wheel and make it into a a cart, <laughs> a go-kart, <laughs> big wheels, <laughs> <laughs> because I, 
I'm so afraid it will take over. And that might not be warranted, forgive me. I have a pretty good sense at this point that among educated people, who the primary people who come to our school are, being reasonable is the way we think. It's just, and I want to get them into the the mythic imagination, the right brain more than more left brain. So that's why I dropped it. And people are free to correct this after I'm gone if, if we see it's led to bad results. That's a very reasonable answer. Oh, good. A, reason, good one, Swanson. a reasonable answer. <laughs> All right, here's our next question. I've spent most of my life avoiding scripture and tradition. Growing up, my family attended mainline Protestant churches in a mostly liberal college town. And I don't remember much emphasis on either liturgy or memorizing Bible verses. By the time I was 14 or so, I was pretty much done with the church and youth groups. New Age culture was commonplace as I grew up, so in high school I used that language to frame my experiences with the ineffable. Entering adulthood, there were many years of a sort of tamped-down spirituality. When our four-year-old son was convinced by his babysitter that he needed to be baptized, I found myself joining a small local church. I became immersed in the good works part of church membership and spent the next two decades busy on the edge of the inside, but never felt completely comfortable. I now live in another town and still attend church, even lead Sunday school, but I've never been able to embrace either scripture or tradition. Richards talked about order, disorder, reorder as a pattern of transformation. I feel like both scripture and tradition live in that first stage of order. Is it possible that for some of us, we start from disorder, going to reorder, and keep cycling between them? like a sine wave or maybe even a spiral? Wow, is that well stated. Every step of your journey seemed reasonable as you uh, expressed it. I could see myself walking on that same path. Is it possible to spiral between disorder and reorder? I don't think you'll do it well or easily if you're not tethered somewhere. Now, as I listen to you, I think you are tethered somewhere. <laughs> the fact that you're not in major rebellion, that you'd go back and teach Sunday school, you're a very humble man. You might be tethered by scripture and tradition more than you think. I don't know for sure, but there's not rebellious spirit. You're accusing yourself of it, but I don't hear it in the few remarks you made here. So I'd like you to trust that on the, at least on the unconscious level, you're more grounded in a basic, essential, essential order than you yourself might even realize. And that's why you can do this so well and even do what you just well described. I mean, I identify with that, that I'm in the last 30 years of my life cycling between disorder and reorder mm -hmm. because my feet are back there <laughs> in my youth and in my training in Catholic theology. I can't go back there in literal form anymore. 
but I'm still there, darn it. Or should I say hallelujah? I'm there more than I realize. People outside of the Catholic world see that. People who are Catholics think I've completely thrown it out. That ain't true. And you who are Protestants see, he's so Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) And I bet I'd say the same about you if I knew you well. It doesn't have to operate at the conscious level. In fact, it's probably more operative when it's firmly entrenched at the unconscious level. You don't throw out themes like incarnation and Jesus as my central reference point or whatever else it might be. I feel like one of the things that I hear in this question is the relationship between tension and evolution. Because if we don't hold these three things in tension and our experience becomes the only reference point, that can be dangerous too, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can kind of just glibly and narcissistically determine and create a worldview that serves us. And now I'm not hearing that in your question, by the way, I hear something very different, which is what Richard is saying, which is if these things are an evolution, if scripture is an evolution, if our experience is evolving and our tradition is a living tradition that is also not finished, then I think it gives us a permission to embrace scripture and tradition, not as being stuck in the order phase. Not mm-hmm. It's not static. Mm-hmm. It's moving with us from order to disorder to reorder. I think that they're in my disorder states. Okay, maybe I wasn't able to turn to the scriptures as much as I wanted or used to, but there's certainly a lot of disorder scriptures mm-hmm. in there. You know, I think about the Psalms. Yes. The Psalms are basically a whole story of right. like, where are you? What's happening? What's going on? So... I don't know. I think both the evolutionary principle and thinking of these intention helps me. Yeah. And Richard, your phrase that helps me hold that tension when you say, do I say darn it or hallelujah? And it's that (laughs) I don't know yet. It's that, that growing edge of that spiral between order, disorder, and reorder. Yeah. And I thought that, that pithy darn it or hallelujah (laughs) is uh, (laughs) often my prayer. Lovely, lovely. Well, it's non-dual thinking, Mm -hmm. and you've achieved it more than you realize when you can say both of them and mean both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Richard. Richard. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. 
learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.